Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. This is Arnie. And this is Jacob. And no, this isn't the review of Stephen King's The Long Walk. That is coming very soon. Thank you for the emails. I've got the review of The Dead Zone ready, but I am still polishing The Long Walk. So that will be coming here, both of them, in the next month. But we're here today to talk about something totally different. Jacob's joining me again to review a graphic novel, Secret Service by Mark Miller. The basis for the movie Kingsman the Secret Service, which opened this weekend. Now, it should be said, if you're looking for this in trade, you won't find it under the Secret Service. When the original six issues came out, it was called the Secret Service. They rebranded the trade to match the film here. They changed the name of the film to Kingsman the Secret Service, so that's what you'll find the name for the trade paperback under. Yeah, and this is something that it's credited to Mark Miller and Dave Gibbons. Gibbons is the artist. But if you read the back matter, this is all an idea that came from Mark Miller and Matthew Vaughn, director of X-Men First Class, director of Kick-Ass. When they were working together on Kick-Ass, Miller and Vaughn came up with this idea for The Secret Service with the full intent that they would make a movie together of it. But Miller would do it first as a six-issue comic series. And so that's what we have here, an idea spawned from Matthew Vaughn, written by Miller, and then when we see the movie, we will see Vaughn's own spin put on this, I'm sure. Yeah, I do wonder how much of this was just to get something out so the movie could promote it and, and sell it more. It's weird to me. Mark Miller, he's not that big mainstream of a name in comics. Like, yeah, if you read comics, you know who Mark Miller is. He's done a ton of stuff, has a huge body of work. But, you know, it, it's not like a Stan Lee or Jack Kirby or an Alan Moore. Like, after Alan Moore, Mark Miller has the most comic-to-screen adaptations of his work, which really blows me away. I mean, I guess... You could say Stan Lee, but those are creations of his. They haven't really adapted a lot of his stories. But Mark Miller, you had Kick-Ash, you had Wanted, and now we're getting Kingsman, the Secret Service. What about Frank Miller? I mean, he has Sin City, two of them, and Robocops, and... Yeah, but Robocop wasn't based off an original work of his. What about The Spirit? No, that was an older property that he put his name in front of. Maybe we'll review that someday, <laughs> and I could go off on that rant. But that is not his creation or based on any of his works. The 300? 300 is, yes. So Okay, so he's up there. But Frank Miller, again, that a lot of people know that name. I feel like Mark Miller, that, that's more of a comic industry name than one of the big names that has kind of broken out, even though he's had very successful films. Wanted, I mean, was a very successful film. Surprised we haven't got a sequel. Kick-Ass, it wasn't huge, but we've gotten a sequel from it. And I think you and I come into this with different views of Mark Miller. I know we talked about him somewhat on Kick-Ass. I had read the original Kick-Ass run. It was another series. They've since done Kick-Ass 2 and 3, and there's a hit girl ongoing. But when I think of Mark Miller, the first thing I really think of is his work for Marvel. And I mean, this was published by a Marvel imprint. Secret Service and Kick-Ass both were. That's why it's part of Now Playing's Marvel movie series. But I think of him... I think of Marvel Civil War, first and foremost, that huge crossover, Captain America versus Iron Man, and I've read all like 100 and some comics that even tied into it, 
and his work on The Ultimates, which if you don't want to read the comics, though I like those comics, it was also made into Ultimate Avengers, the animated movie that was really good. All of his Ultimate X-Men stuff, I really like the spin he puts and kind of the edge he gives superhero comics. I've got a history with Mark Miller. Like He was a protege under Grant Morrison, who is one of my favorite comic book writers, has done a ton of superhero stuff. You know, I talked about him when we reviewed the X-Men film. Grant Morrison saw those films and like, yes, this is the direction that the X-Men should be taken, really revamped the X-Men to fit more of that universe. He's done a ton of stuff on the DC side, did like a seven-year run with Batman. And he really, you know, was a mentor to Mark Miller. And I I think what Mark Miller saw was like, yeah, it's neat to be artistic and have crazy ideas, but you could also just play your audience and make a lot of money and have a lot of popular comics. That is my opinion that when I look at Mark Miller, it's like an evil version of Michael Bay. Like I know how to manipulate the audience. I know what comic book people want. You read kick ass and yeah, I'm going to have this like attitude about comics and oh, I'm too cool for him. And you know, isn't it, aren't these silly when someone dies, they always come back to life. Like I feel he knows how to write to the comic book audience for better or for worse. I'm not saying that everything's tainted like that. His ultimate stuff. I like, the first volume of that it it was a very different take a cinematic take on the avengers and i I feel that had a big push on what we've seen on the screen now and you know we're going to get a avengers civil war so he's really had his mark on comics for better or for worse i i would say i'm a little cooler than a lot of people i'm not excited to see when he has a new work coming out so does that make michael bay the good version of michael bay If Mark Miller's the evil version. I think he's like the toddler infant version where he's like, he's just innocent and likes to see things blow up. He's not necessarily trying to manipulate everyone, but. I can't say that I seek out Mark Miller comics. There's a reason I didn't read The Secret Service. It's because I'm not into spy comics that much and I don't follow Mark Miller. I read stuff that I want to read anyway. And if he has written it, I'm more excited, but It's really Matthew Vaughn that excites me. I love that director. We've reviewed X-Men First Class, my favorite X-Men film to this day. We reviewed Kick-Ass, absolutely one of my favorite superhero movies of all time. And so it's this movie adaptation, Kingsman, that got me interested enough to go back and read this comic. And I want to state, even though the movie came out this weekend, we are recording this review before seeing the movie. The movie is not out yet here in the States. It is open in the UK while we're recording this, but we are going to be reviewing that movie live at NowPlayingPodcast.com, our first live movie review ever at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. You go to NowPlayingPodcast.com, and there's where we're going to be reviewing that movie. I've seen the trailers, I've seen the bonus clips, I think, certainly, that like Kick-Ass, there's going to be a lot of similarities between Secret Service the comic and Secret Service the movie. I also know for a fact, just from what pre-release materials are out there, there's going to be a lot of differences too, down to character names. I mean, I don't know why Gary London and Jack London aren't good enough names for characters, but when we get to the movie, the kid's going to be named Eggsy instead of Gary. Yeah, I'm excited for the Matthew Vaughn version of this. I feel like with Kick-Ass, the comic, I I was very cold to it. I felt it had a lot of problems tonally and how it treated certain characters. And I felt Matthew Vaughn really improved on that comic. And so I'm excited to see what he could do with this as we get into this. This feels almost like a work-for-hire job. It Yeah, Icon is like the independent imprint of Marvel. And, you know, this is what creator-owned stuff comes out on. But this just feels like let's get something out that maybe will sell a few more copies when the better movie comes out. 
And I'll also say that we're going to make this a spoiler-free review, mainly because I do think there's going to be some similarities between the movie and the comic. And if I hadn't read this comic, when I saw that movie, there would have been things that shocked me, I believe. I'm guessing at what's going to happen in the movie based upon reading this. I know there's going to be a lot of changes, but I know there's also going to be some similarities having read this and seen the trailers. I don't want to spoil the movie or the comic for anyone who wants to read this. If you want to read it, it was a really quick read. Just six issues. I didn't tie myself. I know I read all six in well under an hour. Yeah, it's a brisk read. Six issues. Well, we'll discuss it. I don't even know if you need all six issues here. It's Yeah, there's a lot of large panels. A very quick read for me. But we will kind of go through it linearly. And I'll say issue one. I came into this basically thinking about the trailers, thinking about the suits and the spies and all of that. So I was pretty shocked when the movie opens with Mark Hamill. Not just a character named Mark Hamill, the Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, the actor, kidnapped by a bunch of terrorists and the British spies trying to rescue him. Again, this is Mark Miller to me. Let's take something, a pop culture thing. Geeks are into Star Wars. They're into Mark Hamill. Let's put him in this situation. We're going to ask him what his opinion was of the Phantom Menace and the prequels. Just the taint I bring into this. I, I, this could be a lot of fun. I don't know. This, to me, seems like Mark Miller just on cruise control. This is what he does. He's able to bring these pop cultural elements that people into comics would really enjoy and kind of skew them and have fun with them. But my feeling throughout at least the first half of this series is there's a lot of pop culture movie references. Whereas you said Miller knows how to write comics for comic fans. Here, I do think, and perhaps because he'd gone through the process of making Kick-Ass and he'd worked with Matthew Vaughn on this idea, here he's writing comics for comic book movie fans. And that's what I am. But Everybody is talking about movies. You know, you're going to get to the main character, Gary, and his parents are talking about bit torrenting, and he's talking about how 3D effects movies need to be seen in a theater, but you can bit torrent the other films. You've got the spies all talking about their favorite movies and video games, and there's pop culture references throughout the first half of this series, which is really the character introduction part. The plot kicks in about the second half. Yeah, and I think that there is some good stuff here. I think, you know, Arnie, you did, with Now Playing Podcast, you did that entire James Bond retrospective. Maybe you picked up on some things that I might have missed, but I really felt like, yeah, this is going for that James Bond parody, this opening scene where they're trying to rescue Mark Hamill and, you know, skiing through the mountains and they got their gadgets and parachutes and, you know, things don't necessarily go the way they would go in a Bond film, but I really do feel like this is... Overall, this story is supposed to be a takeoff on that Bond mythos and, and to play around with what makes James Bond James Bond. I think it's all spy movies. James Bond is the epitome of the spy movie, so you're certainly going to see a lot of that. But they make fun of it in the trailer, be it James Bond, Jason Bourne, or Jack Bauer. There's a lot of spies that they're going to all be lampooned, just the conventions of the spy film. Yeah, I mean, when Gary finally goes to spy school and they're like, we're going to teach you the exact location of the G-spot and how to make a woman orgasm every time. No, 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 no. The second G-spot. <laughs> that's right. The second G-spot. Everyone knows where the first one is. It's the second one that's the mystery. Yeah, I mean, to me, that felt like a very Bond thing, always using his penis to find out the secrets. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sex in this comic. It should be said this is a rated M comic for Mature, and there's nudity, there's cursing, there's a lot of violence in here, and that's what I would expect from 
the writer of Kick-Ass. Yeah, and also, it should be said, the artist here, Dave Gibbons, I don't know if he has a huge body of work, but he should be well-known at least among comic book fans. He was the artist for Alan Moore's Watchmen. He was the co-creator there, and that's primarily what I know him from. And so it is weird seeing this different style, because that style from Watchmen is so ingrained on me here. It doesn't seem as intricate. It's good. There's not a special style to it. That It, it doesn't feel like a Dave Gibbons comic. And again, I haven't seen a lot of his other stuff. Most of it's UK, early, like, 2000 AD style stuff. So maybe this is more traditional for him, and The Watchmen was a special thing. But yeah, when you get violence, it looks gruesome. Like, he does good when there's blood and brains being splattered or whatever's going on. It's an adequate style here. It it sells the violence. But I can say, without spoiling it, that this opening with Mark Hamill ends on an unconventional note. And it's setting up that... We're not in a spy movie. We're going to be in kind of like a 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street, the movie version of a spy movie, where at some moments they're going to be doing superheroic feats, and at other moments they're going to be in all too real a world where they poke fun at spy movie conventions. I'm not sure that it ever pays out, though, as to why all of this stuff happens the way it does. No, that's a big problem for me throughout this story, it just never seems to really meld for me. Things don't really seem to come together. I get there's a villain, he's got a plot, we find out why these pop culture icons are being abducted. We'll find out why things go wrong at the beginning, but it's not like a major plot element. I think it's more shock value to see that within the first few pages. To me, so much of this is a Gary story. You know, the kid from the street trying to become refined, trying to become... James Bond or Jason Bourne wear the right suit. That is the majority of the story. And, oh, yeah, we're going to throw a little plot villain in it, too, because you, you got to have some kind of plot to it. And that is the story that appeals to me most. And you mentioned Watchmen. I didn't know the artist of Watchmen off the top of my head. You're the comic book guy. I've read Watchmen. I've read V for Vendetta. And I got a little bit of a throwback to those in a more modern version. One thing that I really liked about those comic series the most was there were political commentaries going on. V for Vendetta, very UK-based and about Margaret Thatcher and all of that stuff going on in the 80s. And here, when we're introduced to Gary... I am initially excited to think we might be getting some of that going on for the 21st century. He's living in public housing in London. His parents, or his mother and her boyfriend, I don't think they're married. Neither one of them have jobs. There's another baby at home. They're on the UK equivalent of welfare. And Gary, being poor, has fallen in with a bad crowd and steals cars and Torrance movies. Yes, Millar's going to put that on the same <laughs> level of theft, and they both are theft, so I agree. He doesn't want to lose royalties when the film comes out. He's, he's got a vested interest in stopping bit torning. Yeah, and they're having their little kid roll joints and all of that. And I think, especially later on when they start making some snide comments about Tony Blair, that we might get a nice political commentary. I think that that is something that we lack in a lot of current comics. That's something Watchmen of V for Vendetta and Alan Moore did really well. Again, it's in the beginning. I think that when he starts getting into storytelling mode and gets out of world building mode, it's all for nothing. It's kind of wasted. Yeah, Miller, he he doesn't want to get into politics. He wants to say shocking things. He wants to show you a five-year-old rolling a joint. But I mean, we get to the end of this and it's like, 
hey, mom, here's some money so you can live in a nice house now. Hey, everything turned out great because I stopped wearing my baseball cap backwards. Like, it comes down to this weirdly conservative <laughs> message, like, wear the right suit and everything will go fine for you. It's, yeah, it drops any kind of politics it could get into by showing people living on the dole and being in this life of crime, being a gang member to just, hey, pull your pants up. I think there's more to it than that, because the thing with Gary is he has his uncle, Jack London, and I think that it is a political statement to say Jack and his sister both grew up in the same housing development, but Jack worked hard in school, did well in school, and was handpicked from school, fast-tracked through the military academy to become the super spy British agent. And his sister didn't try and didn't stay there. So there's a bit of a meritocracy at work. And some of that plays out. You see scenes between Jack and his sister, Gary's mother, where he basically says, you're lazy and that's why you're in a slum. Yeah, we, again, it, they want to criticize Tony Blair, but that's probably what, I mean, well, Tony Blair was with the... Labor Party, but I feel like that's what a lot of the Tories would say getting into British politics that I know very little about. Just know their basic parties. But yeah, <laughs> you're lazy, get a job, stop smoking grass. It's again for Mark Miller. I know his politics. I've heard him talk. It's so weird that he would go with this message here. I don't know his politics. Is he more liberal leaning? He's pretty liberal. Yes. I only know what I read in Civil War, which seemed that way. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> In this, though, I do find there to be some interesting family dynamics when we're introduced to Gary, because his mother's boyfriend is abusive, Gary is beaten, Gary's mother is beaten, but when Jack comes back, Jack isn't this nice guy. He's verbally abusive to his sister about how she just has ruined Gary's life. She screwed up Gary is his assessment, and he wants to let Gary go to jail and stop bailing him out, being a... Secret Service agent, even though his family doesn't know that, he has a literal get-out-of-jail-free card that yes. he keeps using on Gary. Yeah, I, I like that moment where he just pulls out this card and they gotta let him go. My question is, why does he keep doing it? I don't feel like I ever get wise uh, uh, most of the time throughout this story. Like, Jack will take his nephew Gary to a bar where he's trying to tell him to straighten out his life, and some working-class thugs come in and want to beat Jack up. And a fight breaks out. I, I'm not really sure why that fight breaks out, except we need to see how tough Jack is. I, I feel, again, a lot of this is on cruise control. We'll get the bare minimum story because Matthew Vaughn is hopefully writing a better story for what we're going to watch next week. Yeah, I agree in that fight specifically in the bar. I do get that Jack left his life behind. And it's guilt that let him keep getting Gary out of jail. That's the only time he'd really interact with his family. He's more than happy to live this life of a super spy, betting pseudo-celebrities, but living under the radar. But he is embarrassed of his past. I think that that's something that we're going to see Gary struggle with as well. And I agree. I don't understand why those thugs come up and start a bar fight in that scene that is the trailer for the movie. I mean, yes. <laughs> and the trailer does the fight much better than the comic did. But I do understand why Jack is now helping Gary is because he realizes he's been so absentee. He's ignored his sister. He's ignored his nephew. And he. I think sees himself in his nephew. He came out of the same slums where his nephew's grown up. And so he wants to give Gary the chance he had. Even though Gary didn't do as well in school, Jack's going to use his pull to get Gary into spy school. I mean, they actually say that. It's just yes, spy they just school. They call it spy school. <laughs> 
And I, I think there's a lot of fun when we get to spy school. It goes on too long. Again, I feel like four out of six issues is just Gary going through spy school, having some setbacks, you know, the hero's journey. That's, that should be the first act. That should be the first issue. I feel like it gets dragged out four issues here, but I like some of the stuff that goes on at the spy school. Like they're taught how to like, they got to panhandle and see who could get money and, you know, look at people and describe them later. And he excels at all this stuff. Like he's good at being a grifter and a con man. And, and so a lot of that stuff is fun. And I like the way they do it a lot of the time. They'll just have two guys talking, reevaluating how Gary did. And then they'll just cut to one scene. That's kind of the punchline for that joke. And so I like how they went about it. I just feel like a lot of time is set up building Gary and it, it could have been condensed. And I think that we're going to see that as the bulk of the movie. I do think that it may be done better. One of my problems with this comic is there are three other students in the spy school who are not only not well-developed, I have trouble telling them apart from scene to scene. Yeah, and they're going to come back for the climax, I think. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't know who any of them are, so I don't care. Yeah, I have that problem as well. And there was one joke here, in addition to being good at observing and all of that there's one joke about they're told to steal a car and i had to look it up because did you know whose car gary stole no i felt i'm looking for the asterisk the editor's note like there's a joke there did you google the license plate number is that what you did i did google the license plate number i didn't find it i finally just had to google whose car did gary steal in secret (laughs) service he stole the queen's car okay that I guess that plays better for a British audience. I don't know what kind of car she drives. Yeah, and I did notice after that that there's a little crown symbol on the car, but not being British, not thinking about the royals that much, I didn't get it. But that is a funny joke now that I know whose car it is. (laughs) Yeah. But in addition to being humorous, I actually like some of the more serious parts of this. I mean, if you think about it, did James Bond get to be a great lover naturally and that helped him be a good spy? Here they're going to say they're going to train you in spy school to be a good lover. And I thought that G-spot thing would just be a dropped line, but they're sent out to seduce women. And yes, Gary has no clue how to fit in. He's dressing like seduce women in the ghetto versus in a nice club. Yeah, they all show up in suits, and he shows up with his backwards hat and his blinged-out jacket. I felt like this could have gone further if Mark Miller cared about writing it instead of just getting something out for the film. I felt like this would have been a better Bond parody. Like, this is why James Bond is James Bond. This is why his penis can solve anything, because he's learned the second G-spot. He's learned how to seduce women and get them to talk. I I would think it would have been great if there would have been, like, some allusion to that. You see these different eras of Bond. I I think we do get a Bond cameo later on in the story, but yeah, this is also, again, prolonging Gary's story, though. He fails at picking up a woman all the spies students they have like radio pens and he overhears them talking about him and putting him down so he goes back to his old way steals a car goes driving with his mates gets thrown in jail again his uncle has to pull out the get out of jail free card again they're like why are you still doing this and i'm asking the same thing why are we still here like this is like four issues in this should have been done already I kind of liked it. I like to see his downfall. I like a downfall, but that's second issue stuff. Like, this is pays to be six issues, which is a good size for a trade. I guess that's my problem with, did you call it decompressed comic storytelling? That is a term, yes. Where it takes six issues or more. Bendis is big on this. Yes. It takes six issues or more to tell the story that Stan Lee told in one. Yes. 
That is a problem here. It is. This is the type of storytelling it is. On the one hand, I like those comics because they're very fast reads. They're usually very pretty. Sometimes when I see certain comics that have an entire page of exposition and it takes as long to read that page as a page of a novel, I feel it slows down the pacing of a comic a lot. Here, this I said was a quick read, but that stuff is issue two stuff with compressed storytelling. With this, again, take all six issues, this is an origin story. The same way in not even one issue of a comic, Amazing Fantasy 15 was one third of a comic in which Stan Lee set up Spider-Man, told the origins of his powers, and told about the first criminal he battled after he killed Uncle Ben. That's a third of a comic book in the old days. All of that same kind of setup is six issues here. That's why you're getting this stuff in issue four instead of issue two. And it was a surprise to me that this is an origin story, because I don't think we'll ever get a sequel. Even Kick-Ass, imagine Kick-Ass if at the very end you're introduced to Hit-Girl. That's how this feels. Like, no, we get Hit-Girl, Big Daddy, we, we get a whole plot. It's also an origin story, but we get much more story in that book. Here, though, yeah, I was surprised that this is a basic origin story for Gary. And we haven't even got into the main villainous plot. Like, this is all just, we get maybe a couple of pages each issue about this villain doing something in the background. You mentioned Kick-Ass, and I thought about Kick-Ass a lot in this book. And the reason is, I see so many parallels here. You've got a young person who's living a pretty ordinary life and has a missing parent who's going to discover not superpowers, but become the best human they can be, and through very violent means. But the one thing this lacked, and I almost credited it this because it meant a more lean storyline and a more tight hero's journey, is there was no hit girl, there was no big daddy. The big daddy in this is Gary's own uncle, who's, in a way, this is almost just the hit girl story part then, in that they're taking their younger relative and training them how to kill and become an efficient killer. I don't know if we'll ever see a sequel series of this in comic form. I honestly believe that like Kick-Ass, it depends on how well the movie does. If Miller's going to return to this, I get the impression from following him on Twitter that Miller is more into his Hollywood money than his Marvel money. Yeah, he's a hype machine. He's probably already bragging that six sequels are coming out for this film. Yeah, I definitely know that just in the back pages of this, he's already talking about the movie of this when issue one is coming out. So with all of that going on, I think he's waiting to see if he needs to write a sequel for the to then be a movie sequel the way he did for Kick-Ass. This was coming out, by the way, around the exact same time as Kick-Ass 2 in 2012-2013, the comic book Kick-Ass 2. But I think that if it doesn't have a sequel, it's still a journey of taking Gary from the streets at the beginning through spy school. And then if there were a sequel, who knows what that would be, but here he's learning all he has to do, and that's why we need the downfall. He also failed. It's a two-punch. He failed at the picking up women, which is a big James Bond thing. He also didn't do so well with the license to kill thing. He was supposed to go out and do a hit in order to practice assassination, and he didn't want to kill somebody. That's another bit of his journey, and to me, that rang true. I've never killed anyone, and if- <laughs> You're I not going to confess it on a podcast if you have. <laughs> 
Well, I've never even accidentally killed anyone. I've not been <laughs> acquitted of vehicular manslaughter. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If I had to kill someone or if I accidentally killed someone, I've often thought about that as a theoretical. Could I live with myself if I ever took another life? Even if I did it in self-defense, could I? is that something I could live with ending a human life? And here, I think it makes Gary, who I'm tempted to call Eggsy, more relatable <laughs> in that his co-students are just ready to go out there and shoot whoever. I like that he has that hesitation. He's played all these video games. He knows the guns from playing Call of Duty, but when it comes time to actually kill someone, he has trouble doing it. Yeah, but I wish there was a payoff for that. I wish, again, I don't know how much the end of this is because he can't kill someone, because he can't get laid. I think there is something with that not being able to seduce a woman. Well, there's a big plot twist with the uncle because he does seduce someone. But the, even that was like the uncle's like, nah, she's into older men, so I'm going to go for her. <laughs> yeah, and I did like that scene where they just basically spell out the Bond trope. They provide a rationalization for the Bond trope of why the women sleep with them is they don't want to be with bad guys. They yeah. just want to be with rich guys, but bad guys, they don't pay a lot of attention to their women because they're too busy with their world domination plans. They're bad lovers. <laughs> I do wish we could have seen Uncle Jack, like, pull a rabbit out of his penis because he sleeps with the villain's girlfriend. And next scene, she's just revealing every plot point, every aspect of this. I'm like, wait, was he? He's that good in bed? I guess that's what happens with Bond. He seduces the woman and she spills everything. She specifically says that her boyfriend never goes down on her except on her birthday. And when he does, it's not like that. So it wasn't his penis. It was Jack's tongue. <laughs> His tongue loosened hers. I guess that's a subversion of the Bond trope. You think of him as someone who would probably only receive oral than give it, and Jack's given it. But I feel like we're bringing this in. I, I do wish this was more self-aware of those spy tropes and had more fun with it. So much of this, it's just blasé to me. It's just like, oh, yeah, Bond sleeps with chicks. We'll have him sleep with someone, and then she'll tell him everything. But I feel like they're not satirizing the scenes. They're just saying, James Bond does it, so we're going to do it, and we're going to be conscious about what we're doing, so that makes it funny, versus actual jokes. Yeah, it doesn't work for me. I'll, I'll just put it that way. I, I have full faith that Matthew Vaughn will do this better. As for what the villain plot is, that is kind of in the background. We get a couple of scenes. Issue one has Mark Hamill kidnapped, and there's references to a boss who wants Mark Hamill for some unknown reason. Issue two, we get to meet the bad guy, and it's not really a mystery to us. The spies don't know who the bad guy is, but we find out pretty quick that is Dr. James Arnold, who's doing a wonderfully Bondian experiment where there's 51 couples in a group marriage on a beach, and he emits some tone that then gets them to all murder each other. Yeah, and th again, this is very Mark Miller. Go for something that is just grotesque and unsettling, like, it's your wedding day, and now you're going to kill each other. It's effective, though. If you want to sell someone as a Bond villain, yes, having 51 couples get married and then all turn on each other and murder each other, that is unsettling, and that is evil. And that is part of his big plot that we're not going to spoil here, but it is kidnapping celebrities and the newlyweds killing themselves, and that is what Jack is investigating while Gary's going to school. And because Gary drops out, he gets this test where he's dropped off in a, is it Colombia? <laughs> yeah, somewhere in Central or South America. 
And this is his graduation test. He graduates earlier than the other students because it's a make or break. You get back to London in 24 hours or you're out. But by getting back, he then is no longer a student. He's Jack's sidekick. He's the Robin to Jack's Batman, I guess. Yeah, and, and that's a good scene. I, there's some good twists and turns. If it plays out in the movie, it'll be a fun scene, so I don't want to spoil it. But I, I really did enjoy that scene. Even though it's happening so late in this story, I, I still liked some of the humor here, particularly that moment. Yeah, I agree. And I could see it based upon having seen Kick-Ass. I bet that this could play out in the movie. But after this point, I'm going to be very vague about what happens and say, once Gary is Jack's apprentice... This comic goes downhill. I've actually, it sounds like I've enjoyed it more thus far than you have, Jacob. You said it spent too long in the training. I enjoyed the training scenarios. I enjoyed Gary going back to the hood and righting the wrongs that had happened to him and getting revenge against his stepdad or his mother's boyfriend, whichever it was. I liked seeing him, you know, having gone through this transformation and then he goes back to where he was and he's the big man now and he's not going to flaunt it. He uses it only as much as he needs to. He's secure in that. I like that transformation. Once that transformation is done, all that's left is Dr. Arnold's plot and it's just very rote. And there's one twist that I didn't see coming, and it's the one that I don't want to spoil for listeners because I bet it's in the movie. But other than that twist, I don't know if this artist just didn't do well at drawing big action scenes or if it's because they didn't spend enough time with Gary's comrades at the school that I could really follow who was doing what at the end when you have a whole bunch of them in spy gear all on this final mission. But while there's some humor in there and things don't go as planned in funny ways, again, subverting that kind of James Bond thing almost to a level of Austin Powers, it also just comes across as very rote. And I'd say issue six is my least favorite issue of this whole comic. Yeah, my problem is I'm like this is now we're wrapping up the plot in like the last few pages. Like, I, I don't know the stuff with Gary. You're saying this end feels rote. I feel a lot of this felt rote. I mean, stereotypical hero's journey stuff. You know, he's yeah made good with his mom and his little brother. And none of this stuff has particularly entertained me. There have been moments like when he was in spy school. But yeah, I want to see how is this thing going to finally play out? This should be a four issue series. This should be issue four here. I'm here in issue six. If all these other students in spy school were developed, maybe I'd care more about them when things don't necessarily go right, but I don't. They're just, here's your main character, and then here's all the red shirts, and things are going to go wrong. I like the twist ending. I like how they end up saving the day. It's unexpected. They make the entire world into a James Bond ending, which I found funny. And there's some subtle pro-homosexual art in there that I found amusing. Yeah, it, which I looked for. I'm like, right, will they do that? I figured Mark Miller wouldn't. I figured Dave Gibbons. I mean, there is that stuff in Watchmen as well that Alan Moore wrote and Dave Gibbons portrayed with homosexual relationships. So I liked moments here, but it, yeah, by the time we get to this ending, I'm ready for it to end. I agree. I mean, I think this was an entertaining read. I think Matthew Vaughn, who helped originate this concept, is going to take what I consider a good but unfulfilling comic series and elevate it to something I am prepared to love. And I think he's taking a good idea and preparing it to be something that I really enjoy. I, I wouldn't recommend reading 
the Secret Service. I don't think it's necessary. I I don't think there's anything particularly enjoyable about this. Maybe if that film ends up being totally different, then I could recommend this based on some of the plot turns. But I think we're going to get a much better version of the film, and this is pretty unnecessary. I'll agree. Having seen Kick-Ass and having read Kick-Ass, I think that the movie is better than those comics, and I don't see a reason for anything other than the diehard fans to read the Kick-Ass comics. I expect the same thing to happen here. I, again, from the trailers and clips they've released, know there's going to be some deviation from this, from what looks to me to be for the better, but we'll find out when we review that movie live at nowplayingpodcast.com on Tuesday, February 17th, 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. It's going to be a great time. Stuart, Jacob, Marjorie, and I are going to be doing a Q&A afterwards. And we're also going to be giving away some prizes, some now playing podcast episodes that haven't been available for years, including movie reviews of the entire Alien series, everything we've ever done, actually, as well as one of the last remaining now playing DVD ROM sets. We're going to be giving that away. And hey, this is Books and Nachos. So we're going to preview also that during the live show, we're going to be making a big announcement about now playing the book. Yeah, we we got books and nachos here. I don't know. Maybe that's conflict of interest if we reviewed our own book on there. But yeah, we want to do a book. We want to talk about films that you may have not have seen or think are even very good, but that we really like. We want to do 100 reviews of underrated films that we recommend. That's right. The book title is called Underrated Movies We Recommend, where a lot of times at Now Playing Podcast, we feel like we're stuck watching movies that we don't recommend necessarily, especially after last year when we did all of that Stephen King Children of the Corn and <laughs> Mangler and Maximum Overdrive films. This is a chance where Marjorie, Stewart, Jacob, and I will each pick 25 films we love that you may not have seen, either because you've heard it's bad we disagree, or it just failed at the box office, didn't get much of a release. We're talking horror films, sci-fi films, comedy films, all kinds of genres, all eras of film, and it's 300 movie reviews because at Now Playing Podcast, we have three hosts per movie. We're going to have three authors write reviews of a movie. There will be the fan who recommends the movie, and then two other of the authors are going to come in and say if they agree or disagree. So it's a book of 300 movie reviews, but because it's movies and not just fiction, and because we want to hire an artist to do custom art for the project, a nice cover, as well as to make it visually appealing inside and have some original art. And don't forget the editors. We want to make sure our writing is up to snuff. This is our first book. And while we've written for the web, we know just because you have a blog doesn't make you a writer. And so we want to have an editor correcting our grammar and polishing our words to help us be professional writers. And we also need lawyers to make sure we're not stepping on any toes in Hollywood. And all of this takes a lot more money than we ever thought it would take to write a book. You'd think writing a book is a free thing. You do it with a keyboard. It is. Publishing a book, self-publishing a book costs a lot of money that we don't have. So we are launching the first Now Playing Podcast Kickstarter, where we're hoping you'll go. We're launching it the day of our live show and hoping that you will pledge and help us get this hundred movie reviews in a book form. We'd really like to get it published in paper form. That is an extra huge amount of money. We've decided to start semi-realistic with just the fees for the artists, the lawyers, the editors, and such. 
And so we're looking at an ebook as our main goal. If we happen to make it, we do have a stretch goal where we would love to get these published and be able to sign them and sell them to you at various conventions and shows. So all of those details will be revealed in great detail on the 17th during our live show where we review Kingsman the Secret Service by Matthew Vaughn, director I love. I'm going to see the only two movies of his I haven't by the time we review that and really go in depth about the adaptation of this graphic novel. And there will be spoilers there, so if you just can't wait to read this book, maybe we'll get into them on that show. So we hope to see you then at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I'll be back in a couple weeks with my review of Stephen King's The Long Walk. And until next time, remember to support your local bookstore or comic book store. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.